Hi, I'm John Brewer. I'm a director and a producer, and I also have had 50 years of experience in the music industry. Chuck Berry was Chuck Berry. The definition of Chuck Berry is Chuck Berry. If you were to try, to try and give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry. He is the most important guitarist in rock history. He could tell you a full story in three minutes lyrically. If he couldn't think of a word, he would just make one up. Coolerator. Botheration. Motivating. Everyone wants Maybelline, Maybelline. Well, the music is just too powerful to be denied. And you could almost say Chuck Berry invented the teenager. Black records wasn't getting played on, 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 on white stations even at that period. He was the first inductee in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mr. Berry. Dino Mike. We went to record at the legendary Chess Studios. When we were in the studio, we met Money Waters, Chuck Berry. Started that whole hip-hop tradition. <laughs> Back then, he was the, gang, the first gangster. <laughs> you know, Chuck Berry was a character that Charles Edward Anderson Berry played. When he came home, he was the man I married. The money goes in the case, then the guitar comes out. <laughs> yeah, he's the man, for sure. He's giving me more headaches than Mick Jagger. That is the trailer for the recently released documentary, Chuck Berry, the original king of rock and roll. And this is Factual America. Brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a production company that makes documentaries about America for an international audience. Chuck Berry was the original king of rock and roll. That is according to John Brewer, who should know. Known as the god of rock docs, John discusses Chuck Berry, the making of his documentary about the American icon, and a host of amazing stories drawn from his 50 years in the music business, working with the likes of Jimi Hendrix, The Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Jerry Rafferty, and B.B. King, just to name a few. We caught up recently with John from his studio in London. John Brewer, welcome to Factual America. John, how are things with you? Well, with me, uh, personally, I'm okay. It's a bit cold here in England. And of course, we're subjected to this strange virus lockdown. But other than that, um, I'm okay. Thank you. Yeah, well, we're, I'm, it's, I'm based in England as well. So um, it's good to be talking to someone in the same time zone. Usually I've got someone in LA on the other end. But uh, um, also good news today. We got a word of another vaccine that's about 94, 95% effective, supposedly. So... Maybe we're about to see the end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel, and we just... I, I think we are, but it's yeah. going to last, the effects are going to now last for some time, and, you know, uh, I know everyone's cancelling tours, and, um, yeah. you know, every, the whole routine of scheduling is completely, in, in a good English way, is cocked up, but, you know, <laughs> that's what's happened. It's what's happened, and it's what, I think, it's the, we're all in a, one big giant... Boat. We're on that same boat together. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it's, it's quite an honor to have you on. Um, we're here to discuss primarily uh, your latest film, 
uh, Chuck Berry, the original king of rock and roll. Uh, it sa- it's as it is, as it says on the tin. Uh, he fortunately passed away, went on to rock and roll heaven, we think, uh, on March 18th, 2017. Um, but uh, where can listeners find this film? I think it's on all major streaming services and it's about to come out on DVD and Blu-ray. Is that correct? Well, I, I think it's correct. The problem is that I was asked this question the other day and um, the, the, it's on s- some of the platforms and there, there are holdbacks on certain situations, but it's done, been on a theatrical release. And quite interestingly, we picked up a lot of the drive-ins and we basically... Had oh, great success, wow. and also we um, had uh, sort of uh, the smaller uh, sort of uh, art theatres uh, okay. picked up on it, and of course we we've milked it all the way since then successfully, and then DVD will be coming out, and then um, we probably will be on the bigger platforms, yes, and then we'll go to the smaller platforms as things do. But okay. then from there onwards, everything looks great. Well, excellent. Well, again, it's, uh, I've seen the film. I highly recommend it. I really, really enjoy it. It was a, it was a, it's a good, good, good fun, good hour and a half, certainly. Um, I mean, maybe I, uh, the next couple of questions are going to seem, certainly for some of my age, seem a little odd. But uh, in talking to someone on my um, my team uh, who said we we're talking about this and she said, well, um, uh, she, she didn't really know anything about popular music before the Beatles. So um, maybe give us a little synopsis of the film and uh, then tell us who Chuck Berry was. Well, Chuck Berry, um, I think, um, was the king of rock and roll because he performed uh, and he wrote and he recorded. Mm. To me, um, just spending a little time on on Chuck uh, at this point, um, whereas Elvis dev- didn't write. He performed and he recorded. And little Richard, well, um, he, he sort of wrote, and um, but not to the extent that Chuck wrote. And so in a way, I just think that... Um, Chuck was the the, uh, sort of king of rock and roll. He wrote um, with lyrics. He was a poet. Mm. And um, he invented many words, as it was pointed out, probably not in the Scrabble Dictionary. Um, And uh, if you listen to those lyrics, they were uh, pointed towards... uh, for obvious reasons, because Chuck was a lot older than being a teenager, towards the teenage audience, which I really believe he created the teenager. Because although I grew up as a teenager, I thought I was a teenager and I knew about teenagers, there were a lot of people that didn't really realize they were teenagers. Mm. And the teenage uh, expression, the teenage want, the teenage um, things that, made teenagers teenagers was everything that chuck wrote about and um if he couldn't use words that we all knew he made them up and it was great um so that was chuck and uh, chuck was uh um 
was given one of the the the, the best launches as a musician because everyone thought he was white mm. and in those days um when he first started you had black radio that would only play black music and there was um white stations that would only wear, play white uh, uh music and um the white stations were the powerful stations of course and what happened was he got his break because they all thought he was white and when he came to concerts, there's many stories yeah. and um, appearances that he turned up and uh, they went, no, 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 we're, we're waiting for Chuck Berry because he was black. And uh, most of his problems uh, rose from um, being black. God knows what he would have happened if he had been white. But uh, in those days, um, that's what happened. And I believe he was one of those pioneers of being able to get rid of the racism or start anyway, because I don't know whether you know anything about his performances, but I have visuals and there's some visuals in, in the film yeah. that show um, archive footage of him basically going from one side of the stage, side of the stage to the other. Now, this was what Chuck did. He was very clever. He, uh, Ingrid, his daughter, who was with him for 42 years on the road, told me this. His idea was to pull those on the left over to those on the right, and those on the right over to the left. Well, in the South, and, and m m majority of the South and, and, and other territories too, there was a law that if, you were watching an artist perform, there would be a rope down the middle of the club. And that rope would disappear at Chuck's performances because he went from the left to the right and the right to the left. And he was moving so fast that people loved dancing um, and music, especially at that time. And they still do, of course. And what happened was that they mingled. They started dancing in the clubs and um, black would dance with white and white would dance with black and the rope would go down and there was always police at those venues and they couldn't do anything about it yeah. because nobody could really work out where the rope was and that's what actually happened <laughs> and um i'm i'm uh, uh, being the the god of rock docks as they now refer to me and the <laughs> um experienced that in not unfortunately not with Chuck but um, when we were filming in the in the uh, California deserts we filmed at night and um, in the open there uh, outside and it was so cold that um, that was one reason we did this we put bins big speaker bins up in the desert and at a gas station, which um, was the set. Right. And we, um, what we did was put Maybelline on and keep playing Maybelline. And I don't know whether you ever experienced this, but if you play Maybelline, you will never stand still. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how we generated heat with a couple of overcoats and sweaters and various other things. Yeah. And what we did was make um, really re-remake the same thing that happened in those clubs which basically tore down that barrier 
Yeah. And uh, eventually it collapsed. Not completely, but it collapsed. And racism, uh, I believe, in all our ways, and I looked at Nat King, I did Nat King Cole, as you know, yeah. was similar. He tackled the situation of racism in his own little way or big way. And Chuck did the same. Yeah. Because um, he got himself into all sorts of pickle <laughs> and got himself arrested on many yeah. occasions. And um, I'll talk about that later um, as we get into this conversation. Yeah. That was the reason. You couldn't stand still uh, listening to Maybelline. <laughs> well, yeah, and you've just, I mean, that's just one of his many songs, which a lot of people may not even of a certain age or may not even realize are his originally. Uh, Maybelline, Rock Rollover, Beethoven, Rock and Roll Music, Johnny B. Good, Brown Eyed Handsome Man, you can just, Monkey Business is one that you give a lot of uh, airtime towards the end when talking to his daughter, I think, Ingrid. Um, I mean, so he's he's written these fam- these amazing songs. As you say, you think, you know, as you, you po- not just pose it, I think a lot of people agree with you that he is the original king of, of rock and roll. He was the first inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, and then I think for some of my generation who grew up in the United States, I mean, I hate to say it, but the sad thing I, I found watching this film was that I grew up of an era which, okay, he had the novelty hit in terms of my dingling, right? Which is ironically his own first and only number one. And then, and then you heard all about the troubles with the law and the tax man. But I think what your film does is brings us back to to the essence of his greatness and and who he was. Um, and I think this thing about the poet and storyteller, I mean, maybe you can say even more about that, because I think um, you've got archive of uh, McCartney, I think, on there and others just saying how he could just boil a, a, a tell a whole story in, in less than three minutes. Mm. Well, he definitely was a storyteller, that's for sure. And he yeah. definitely was um, a poet. The situation is that um, I, th- I, I, I personally think and uh, uh, I, I, there are various views of his life mm-hmm. that became um, detrimental to his ongoing performing Mm. and his relationship with um, how to deal with them. Um, see, when I started in the industry, there were no parameters. Yeah. We were pioneers. We created those parameters. And, um, you know, publishing is very important today, um, and it was very unimportant in, in those days. But... Um, you know, uh, he was responsible for bringing the cycle in of what we know as rock and roll in music today. It was three chords. He played the guitar beautifully, wonderfully. Beautifully is not the word. He played it wonderfully. And it was related to the songs that he really um created that was so important to the Beatles, so important to the Rolling Stones. A lot of the English acts that came over to perform in America that we know of, The Who and 
Alvin Lee, 10 years after, all of these acts basically learned from Chuck Berry and they adapted their way of playing his songs. And, and they would make a, I mean, they'd, they would uh, set a path straight for Chicago and Chess Records, wouldn't they? I mean, a lot of them as in a way of being well, that, That's a little bit of, um, a little bit too easy to basically um, agree with that. Really? A lot of those would be listening and it always happens through ports. And Ports basically, uh, as as you probably well know, the Beatles used to go down, Ringo used to go down, Paul McCartney, John Lennon used to go down to the docks. And as the big ships came in, they'd bring them American uh, uh, jukebox second-hand right. records, and they'd, they'd swap them. And before you knew what happened, is that became the format of... Um, their band of which they were going forward and they wrote songs based around what they heard um, and it became related to those places you just suggested um, yes the Stones did go over and record thinking they were going to pick up the sounds that they had developed their music around you also looked at the back of a Stones album and everything was, you know, um, bury this, bury that, bury this, bury that. We'd written all these songs. Yeah. The Beatles were the same in a way, although not as much. But the Who, um, everybody that was starting out of that period of time was saying, if he can do it, we can do it. But they didn't really do it as well. Uh, mm. in certain ways. Um, but you can hear Chuck in their, their way they've performed. And of course, you've got to understand that um, uh, he was a real writer. Yeah. A real writer. I, I think you have that great scene now. Um, maybe educate us. There's this, um, there's sort of a tribute concert done, wasn't it, in, in St. Louis? And you've got... Um, Hail, hail, rock and roll. Hail, hail, rock and roll. You got Keith Richards on there, and you've got that. You capture that scene where uh, Chuck Berry basically is giving Keith Richards uh, guitar lessons. Yes. Well, um, <laughs> look, uh, you, you've got to, uh, to a certain extent, understand Chuck Berry. Yeah. It's difficult. Otherwise, uh, it, it, we would have had quite a lot of Chuck Berries. Yeah. But Chuck Berry was not an easy person. Mm. I think going to prison, uh, and they do say that a prison sentence of any length changes the person. And I think he got that from prison. I think he had a chip on his shoulder about a lot of things and he pushed the boat out too far. I've been criticized for saying that, but I really do believe he pushed the boat out too far, which means he stretched it. Why open in St. Louis a, a um, club that for, for people to dance at, younger people to dance at, that allowed against the normal rule that whites went to white clubs and black clubs to black clubs? Why open one in St. Louis? It was the only one, right? And cause the authorities 
and basically basically he was putting a finger up to or two fingers up to the authorities yeah. and they will bring him down yeah because they'll stop his licenses they'll stop his hours they'll stop his various other things and then he bought a cinema because a cinema or a, a um a theater Mm. Uh, and wanted to show specialized films and bits and pieces. They closed him down. And the man, where the man act, which was never intended mm. to do what they did with him, um, basically was nonsense. You know, um, he met one of his friends in the neighboring state. He met a girl that wanted a job. He was opening this club. He said, I'll give you a job if you want to come basically come back to St. Louis. And she did. And um, she got back to St. Louis and she was part of the, the um, you know, the opening night. She wore this wonderful headdress and she was a novelty. And unfortunately, you know, he got wound up in, in that. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I don't think Chuck was short of a few girlfriends. And anyway, he was happily married yeah. at that time. Um, uh, Thometa, who basically was his wife right from the start to the finish, yeah. um, said to me that um, he just built that club because when he went up to do bandstand, he couldn't believe how much the young people wanted to dance. Mm. And that's what he did. He, Fortunately, got himself into hot water again. Man Act was, he went to prison. And I can tell you, well, I've researched, the reason he went to prison was because he was black. And there is no, no question about it. Charlie Chaplin, who also was accused of the Man, uh, uh, um, of the man Act, didn't go to prison. Yeah. And, and didn't Jerry G. Lu uh, Jerry Lee Lewis did similar things, didn't he? I mean, oh, yeah. I mean that's yeah. not the story altogether. He actually got married to them yeah. at the age of 13, yeah. which he got round in loopholes and various things. And I don't know, some people, I don't know. I, was, I, I certainly was much too young at that time to really know, and I certainly didn't live in St. Louis at that time, St. Louis, what do you want to say? Um, at that time to see that whole thing going on. But, you know, they couldn't, if they were outside their areas in the city that they lived in and they were in a black area, they were okay to a certain degree, but they went into white areas, you had a problem. Well, you know, yeah, no, I was going to say, you've, you've, you're talking about a lot about uh, St. Louis and the thing that struck me as well and I hadn't appreciated was, I mean, part of this, identity who he is is this he has this love for his hometown even if it's not treated him very well you know and that's he, I, he owned a lot of it <laughs> what, what's that he owned a lot of it. well yes i mean i think didn't you have a i forget who says it but um it's about 50 50 sort of you know responsibilities for some of the, the troubles that he got you know he certainly was as you said pushing the boat out um really stretching the limits um well, he wanted he wanted to create a disneyland he thought yeah. that was wonderful so he bought berry park um his uncle no his brother um i was speaking to his son about it his brother said own some land up there and told chuck 
there was some land, a lot of land being for sale. And he bought it and tried to create a, um, a Disneyland, a small Disneyland up there and uh, filled big sort of um, craters with water and stuff, built a swimming pool in the shape of a guitar. Uh, you could go up there and stay there and basically join in the fun and games. He wanted um, concerts there and said he didn't want to promote them. And he got into terrible trouble because guns were carried, drugs were carried. Uh, Leon Russell hadn't been paid by the promoter. And, you know, if Chuck Berry had been the promoter, he created so much about being paid and being ripped off that that would never have happened. But it eventually closed it down. I'll tell you a little story. When I turned up and first saw Berry Park, I was very excited. And it's derelict. And yeah, yet, you, yeah. Yeah, you capture that on the film a bit. I mean, it, it surprised me uh, towards the end because it's it, not... A, the first thing came out of my mouth. Why? Yeah. And there in the middle of it was the most beautifully new build of house. And he lived in that house. He built it for himself. And he also lived in his house in another part of the city, a very affluent part mm -hmm. of the city, which is where Thameta lived and, lived and the family lived. Now, I said to his family, why did he not repair the swimming pool or the, yeah. when after the fire there was problems and this and that, and his son, although being a musician and that toured with him, um, actually was a builder. Hmm. And I said, why didn't you do this up? He said, I wasn't allowed to. <laughs> Dad said, don't touch it. And he, he did that really to prove a point. It was a failing, failure point because he tried to give pleasure to a lot of people, but he was stopped in every way. I mean, when you think about it, there was a death in the pool, I think two deaths for kids mm -hmm. in the pool. And it just basically topped him. He said, that's it. No more. Just leave it as it is. Um, now, there's further stories that go on. And um, his wife, she was really a very interesting point. His wife said to me, I said, I found it very difficult because he wrote a book and his biography was there. And she said to me, I said, what did you think of the biography? And she said, I only wish, only wish that he told me all these stories that he told in the book to my face rather than having to write it and put it out. Mm. And I said, oh, that must be... Um, that must be terrible. He said, well, I'll say one thing. Chuck Berry was a stage name. Yeah. When he walked out of this house, Charles Berry went out and went on tour as Chuck Berry. When Chuck Berry came back off being on the road and walked into the house, he was Charles Berry, the most wonderful father and the most wonderful family man you could ever imagine. Mm. And I know we all say what goes on on the road stays on the road, but it, it, it really was true. And he wasn't very clever in the way, because he was angry, I think. Yeah. 
yeah. on keeping it all to himself and being discreet. And a lot of people would say, well, that's very genuine. Why should he be like that? But there you go. That's what happened. He, he certainly kept a couple of his mistresses on the, on the, on the, on the property. Yeah. And I felt that was quite strange. And yet she was so wonderful to him and he was so wonderful to her. Yeah, that's, I mean, you can, it, well, except for uh, right at the beginning, but almost right at the beginning is it kicks off with the meta. Um, and she comes across as she was definitely his lodestar, I would say. But as you've already, they married 69 years, um, beautiful children. Um, she's quite amazing. I can't, she must be around 90 years old herself. Um, yep. hope I'm doing that well when I'm that age. Um, and yet there are all these infidelities. And like you said, there is this Chuck Berry and then there is this persona that was Charles Edward Anderson Berry. Yeah. They're two people. Yeah. And then, and so, I mean, you, obviously the family was fully on board with this, this documentary. I mean, how did you, they were, they, you're kind of showing warts and all, I would say. Um, in terms of his uh, life and they had no, I guess they're well aware of it and they've come to their peace with it. Is that right? It is. And I don't think they will ever come to their peace with it. Yeah. Okay. They will, they, they are so pro their dad and you know, that they're not young. His grandchildren are beautiful children and um, they're all playing guitars now and basically um, was so full of grandpa, that was it, you know. But you've got to understand that um, he made a lot of money. He made a lot of money in real estate too. Exactly. He put all his money into real estate. He left $54 million and um, cash, and he basically had about a quarter of a million, um, $250,000 um, was it 250? No, it couldn't be two and a half million on um, real estate. Amazing. Uh, I think you'll find out. But his real estate lawyer was very uh, timid to explain it to me. <laughs> so I <laughs> it may have been a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, he, he does make an appearance in the film, but uh, yeah, he's a bit cagey, isn't he? 250 million he made in real estate. Sorry, I quoted you wrong then. Yeah. It's- Okay, I mean, I think that's a lot of money. Yeah, well, that's what I have down here. I mean, I, I mean, just my own notes. I mean, family man, real estate developer. That's Charles Edward Anderson Berry, you know. And then you've got Chuck Berry, who, I mean, you could argue, as you've already said, for the various reasons why you think he's the king of rock and roll. Uh, but he's and he he created this the persona of a rock and roll star, right? You know, absolutely. But the thing, the thing is that. He would not adapt to the current, at the time, wealth and, and building of the industry. He basically published himself. That's very difficult to do. Mm. And when basically he performed, there's the story of the Chuck Berry stories of, um, you know, his rider. Now, his rider, which went to the promoter of what he required, was mainly the type of equipment that he wanted on stage. He eventually um, 
it was only him and the toothbrush and the case and the guitar. And they would literally, the promoters in the local area would uh, put ads out for whoever was able to play that night. And he'd create a, uh, a band that played Chuck Berry music. And um, sometimes it went wrong, sometimes it didn't. But anything he was asking for was not like to a lot of rock bands, like four crates of, you know, um, hard liquor and... Right. Uh, it was all to do with the equipment. Now, if you didn't supply him with that equipment, he'd find the promoter. And he'd say, that's cost you $2,000. And if he didn't get what he wanted to do his show, he also walked off exactly the timing on the dot, whether it was halfway through a number or not. And he would say very simply, I will be there. You will pay me in cash before we start. Now, I'll tell you a story about an English promoter who I knew well, yeah. who basically said, look, um, I've converted this at a very fair rate to you. <laughs> and he said, you converted it? What are you talking about? He said, well, I, in Sterling, I've agreed to pay you so much money. That's what you wanted. And he said, no, I didn't want that. He said, well, what, what, what did you want then? He said, I wanted it in dollars. I know I'm performing in London, but I need it in dollars. He said, I can't go to the bank because it's Saturday. And we never, as, uh, as you probably know, yeah. um, basically in those days, we didn't open banks on Saturdays. Mm. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I can't perform. He mm. said, well, look, you can get a rate from anywhere. He said, we'll go down to your hotel. And, and uh, he said, no, I want dollars. And I won't be performing tonight. And this guy, poor guy, had to go around every American or English hotel and ask them to basically change funds. <laughs> and by doing that, to get, I don't know whether it was 10,000 a night or 20,000 yeah. a night or whatever it was, right. but that's a hell of a request and a hell of a job to go around all these hotels and um, down to the airport and whatever it was because they're limited to what they could change in those days. So. Yeah. He did it and he came back and gave him the dollars and that was that and it cost me quite a bit of money but also the the he was a stickler with that and if you paid the fine he'd go on yeah. simple as that but he wasn't having it any other way and it was always cash right cash always cash couldn't write a, you know an iou or basically a um or a, a, if he banker's draft or anything banker's draft he wouldn't have taken it yeah he wanted cash. And that was very, you know, I did the B.B. King Life of Riley film and yeah. coming out the B.B. King on the road film just uh, next year. And, you know, the stories that B.B. used to tell me were unreal. That, you know, you had to get your money. B. said he'd always eventually get half his money so he could pay the gas and he basically knew that he was getting something out of it. And um, because he, he, he's, he held the record of 365 days a year of performing and um, sometimes two, two times a night. And he said to me, he said, John, at the end, we had to get our money up front yeah. because we were big enough to demand it. But the thing was, if we didn't, 
they were running down the road with your money from the box office. Mm. And that was it. And, um, you know, all the promoters would basically, you know, if there were white promoters, they were saying, well, that's what happens. You know, if there were black promoters, well, even with black promoters, BBC, BBC, he said, if they had Jewish names and they were black, I knew something was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that seems like a good point to take a a quick break and we'll be straight back with uh, John Brewer. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with uh, John Brewer, director and producer of Chuck Berry, the original king of rock and roll. Uh, you can find it on various streaming services and it's coming out on DVD and Blu-ray. I mean, this, I mean, we've just been talking about Chuck Berry, the man and his persona. I mean, these are, these are days that don't, I mean, these kind of stories, these characters just seem like they'll never be repeated. Will they? Well, the, 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 the business has changed. Yeah. If you walked up and said, I want to be paid in cash and today and you were an artist um that was commanding twenty thousand seaters or thirty mm. it's impossible first of all you become a very high risk situation you couldn't get insurance because yeah. and at the end of the day no one would put up with them mm. so the fact is it could never happen today yeah but those are the little things like um that we've talked about but at the end of the day the world has completely changed i mean look uh, the stones basically sell their tours they don't basically collect money so they right. can't possibly not be paid yeah. and uh, the deal gets done way way mm. before the show's ever seen the light of day um merchandise today sells i don't think he ever sold any merchandise on the road he wouldn't yeah. know how what i mean you know yeah um, and you know, at the end of it, the world has completely changed and he would have earned if he'd been handled by a manager, which he wasn't mm. and handled by a promoter properly, uh, uh, you know, someone like Bill Graham, because it was changing in San Francisco and they had basically, um, five or six major promoters around the country. Mm. And if they, a cartel, if they were handled by, if he had been handled by that cartel, uh, he would have made ten times the amount of money that he made. It's amazing. But it's a different world now. My first royalty statement that I ever got from EMI was written in hand, written by pen. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Every royalty statement I ever got that was written in hand was wrong. Mm. Now they've defined the computer to such an extent they can't cheat it. Yeah. I'm sure there are ways, but a lot harder now costs too much money to do that today. So, you know, at the end of the the end of of the chapter, it's like, you know, 
but you know something he was he was very successful a very clever man mm. he was not you know uh uneducated he was very clever well that really comes out in the film i think for for someone like for me i i just what struck me was how intelligent he was um how ahead of his time he was uh you talk about we talked about him being this rock and roll persona yet at the same time you know sex drugs rock and roll but he didn't have the drugs part certainly as as far as we know or uh, he certainly had the sex part yeah he didn't have the the drugs thing he didn't like it and second and thirdly um he certainly had the rock and roll part that yeah. was yeah but it it needed to be adapted and and i think I think he was a strong man when he came to negotiate. And I don't think he wanted any, a dollar more than he basically agreed. Mm. And, um, you know, there were a lot of things going on in the 70s and 60s and 70s that and pressure put on by artists that had become successful on promoters, demanding more money because he, they didn't trust their gate percentage, mm. you know, well, we're not going on then. And then virtually be a riot and the promoter would buckle in. And I've seen that happen many times. And um, interesting. It's uh, now, of course, I, we discussed earlier on about the, the selling of tours and selling of merchandise mm. and, and you know, artists basically get their money way before it even starts. So that's a big headache that they have, don't have to deal with. So that's something. I, I, I'll tell you why I took that approach. There are, uh, there are several versions of this film, um, but I wanted to get rid of what everybody thought I was going to talk about mm. and, and, and paint. And that was, oh, he was, uh, he was a criminal. Yeah. He basically um, had the misfortune in one way of being put in reform school. But the truth is, was, he was a criminal. He actually did hold up yeah. grocery stores and various other stores. Why? Because he wanted to get home. Yeah. Was, you know, they, they went to California and, had, and ran out of money and they had to get home. Now, you don't. I don't suppose that everybody should say as soon as you run out of money, you should either get onto your folks and get some money sent out so you can get home. If you and I had done it, well, that's probably what we would have done. But you've got to know where he came from. He was, his father was um, a very senior member of the church. And, um, you know, he was very religious at the beginning. Mm. He reckoned he was saving it up to basically the very, very end and he'd done his religious giving at the beginning, which I always thought was an interesting statement. Mm. He, oh, I gave too much to my whoever. And at the end of the day, he said, um, you know, asked, I'll, I'll leave that up to the end. But um, I think that he realized uh, that money could be made and he was interested in making money, but he also wanted people to dance and he wanted people to basically jump around at his music. And he certainly got that going. I mean, if the Stones, 
if you never had Chuck Berry, the Stones would probably be around, but we'd have a very different band. Yeah. And it would be a very different band. So, you know, I think, um, you know, when he went into prison um, for the Man Act, which was after he'd done at a reform school that he was in, um, he'd done time. And uh, I think it really annoyed him. But there's another thing. When he went to, to the tax problem, he was offered a, another deal. And he worked it out that, and, and I won't disclose the deal, but the deal meant that he would have made, would be losing a lot of money. So going in and writing the book and sitting in this very sort of, not, prison but sort of open prison was a better deal as a businessman <laughs> i think that sums it up well as, as the former economist to me is like he obviously didn't value his free time highly enough i think if he, well, think he put that into the <laughs> <laughs> which is an interesting concept in the whole situation Hey, why did why now why have you made this film now because it would never have been made if he was alive is that right? I tried to make it. I tried to turn to go down there. The security uh, was a big, big uh, problem because I was told that if you didn't like what you did, he'll shoot you. And I said, well, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> so I put it off until I was, um, I've, I put it off till, uh, sorry, I put it off till, um, I was in the, in the area mm. and I was down in, uh, sort of in the area, in, in New Orleans. Right. And uh, everyone said the, the, um, he, he had, he'd made uh, the other film and the problem was he was so seriously a problem. Um, because I think it started at $80,000 right. to make Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll. And he ended up taking just under a million because he kept rewriting his contract every day. Yeah. Which wasn't normal for him because when he came to a deal, but he used to say, well, in making a film, we have to rehearse. So every time they did a take, he said, that's more money. And eventually they said, look, you can't go on like this. We've got people out here, but we can't work like that. And he used to literally, and I saw footage of it, he'd literally say, you lot stay over there until I've got my money. And that had to be produced every day on the set. <laughs> so, you know, they would go by, half a day would go by, and it's costing them hundreds of thousands. <laughs> and they so, already had all these sunk costs in there, so they must have said, we've got to That's right. And, but for you to, and, and uh, I'll say something about the stones in a minute, but you, you or Keith rather, you basically uh, understand that the, the studios, Universal, was really seriously a problem to um, the whole. So for me to come down there right. and try and get out of Chuck, you would have got nothing. I got more. That Thermata's interview is the only interview she's ever done in her life that is absolutely amazing 
And I think that's something for our listeners to keep in mind because she was, I mean, she's, she, I, I just found her incredibly compelling. She's so, she's so eloquent, so regal. One thing you did at the doc, it was interesting, was you, you did these reconstructions or dramatizations. Um, that was, uh, and, but they're not just your average reconstructions or dramatizations, are they? I mean, they're kind of, they're very stylized. I, I, I don't know a better way of putting it. Is that... But let me tell you why they're stylized. The situation was that I wanted to know about Chuck Berry and I wanted my audience to know about Chuck Berry. To make a film about being thrown into jail as a kid, coming out and um, then seeing and meeting your wife, taking her to the local fair ground or what they had in those days, um, and meeting her there and eventually starting out life. Um, and of course, then having children yeah. um, was the, uh, a wonderful situation. It was very romantic because there were two people that really loved each other. And it was a strange situation because that, all that, you know, he was very upset the first time he was, um, he was uh, unfaithful to her. Mm. And he, he eventually got over it. But, and, but he, he felt that he was in two different worlds. And she was oblivious to it all. I'll tell you a little story, which basically I told the other day. Mm. Please do. He really had eliminated his, and this isn't in the movie, but had eliminated his, um, he, he sort of, came, he came at a certain level of a musician and artist, um, even though he was still uh, pursued by the press and various other, I suppose, ra by racism to a certain mm. extent. So at the end of the, the situation, his lawyer, who appears in the film, said to, he was also his personal friend, and, well, one of his lawyers anyway, and he felt that he should get, um, he should get Chuck out into society. So he would meet him once a week. And what he also did was invite him around to his home in to have a have a dinner party for him yeah because he'd never been to a dinner party and so his lawyer said to him my wife's going to cook and we we'll have friends there and he said oh okay fine i don't know i'll let you know and he arrives and dinner has been made and there's several parties there of man and wife and he, instead of coming with his wife he came with his mistress. And as he came in, he had this little sort of box, that picnic box that had been made, and um, that had been made by Thometa, who knew he was going with this woman who was his mistress. And not only had he met, she made his dinner, but she'd made it for two. That's... And 
Charles, when we got there, he basically said, I brought the dinner. And he said, no, 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 you don't have to have dinner. You, we're having dinner. We're giving it to you. And he said, well, I brought my friend and, and, and for her too. In fact, I think if my wife knows about this, she'll be very upset. Right? <laughs> <laughs> dinner as well. And things like that, that we all would be, well, kind of must have known what a dinner party was. Yeah. And um, he didn't. And, you know, but he, he, he wasn't, whatever he made out, to be a violent man in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Or, I think, yeah. I think, I mean, it's, and this must have been, I mean, this is, uh, at least for me, this must have been a really fun doc to make. I mean, you've got a veritable who's who of 60s, 70s, and 80s rock and roll stars that uh, right. appearances. Yeah. I mean, who do we, you know, we got the Springsteen, you know, Stevie, Stevie Van Zandt, uh, Alice Cooper, who I'd love to talk to one day, uh, Gene Simmons, George Thurgood. I mean, it's just amazing. Again, that was my choice because. We'd all heard from um, Keith, we all heard from Keith and various other people. Yeah. And we, we referred to um, why I made these um, cutaways, as I called them. Yeah. If you watch the film again, you will find that, as in Baby Driver, there was a technique that was used where it always to a beat so that basically mm -hmm. when the actor or the artist was conveyed in the cutaway that there's music but they walk even the police raid and mm. the, the FBI or uh, raid that took place at uh, Berry Park was in literally in time synchronized totally in time and um, the color is over the top, like Sin City. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so all of this was fun, making fun of that scenario. It wasn't really a fun scenario to make fun of, because. but I thought it would take away the seriousness of making a story of what everybody expected which was, well, he went to jail and he did this and he did that and then he went out and then he got arrested again and everything. Because the matter had said to me, uh, please don't make a fool of him. Mm. And that's why they, there was some criticism of the beginning from the family. He never danced like that. Yeah. I said, well, that wasn't meant to be him, really. It was the time that that took place, yeah. and it was the synchronization that took place. Sound-wise, it's a very interesting piece. I don't know it's my piece, but it's very interesting. And that's why I wanted to do a bit of tongue-in-cheek. That's why when they left one of the places they, they uh, had robbed, yeah. okay, they were dancing and in exactly. time. And, and to give it a little bit of, you know, in the cheek laughter yeah because really it was all very stupid really it wasn't big things it wasn't you know yeah. first degree murder it was like basically just like what a kid would get into trouble for mm. 
And yeah, no, I think I thought it was very interesting because, you know, you, the film starts off that way and you're just like, wait a minute, I thought this was going to be a doc. And, yeah. you know, but it, it, it it's, I agree, it's very effective in the way, you, like you said, it's not literally him dancing out the door, but it's, it's these, whatever, he and his essentially uh, three black youths coming out of a, and, but they obviously wouldn't have been dressed that way. Like you said, the over the top colors, the reds, the blues of the cops you know, and in a otherwise sort of black and white scene. Um, it, it was very atmospheric too. It kind of throws back to that, to the, oh, the 50s. I mean, that's what it was meant to be because I wanted to get away from the desperation of the old racist story. And the fact is that the, 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 the list of things that he did wrong, apparently, but he wouldn't have normally gone to, to, to prison. And, um, it's a sad old story that basically they tried to knock him down. And I suppose in a way they did to a certain extent. Yeah. It would have affected his writing, I believe. It's interesting because you've, you've, as you've already said, 50 years of experience in the music industry. Um, you've worked with a lot of uh, famous people. I suggest people check out, I, I don't know how accurate it is, but I'm, I'm assuming it's pretty accurate, your Wikipedia page and other places where they can find uh, information about you. How, how would you put Chuck Berry in the context of other artists you've worked with? I mean, um, not so much Jimmy even the music. Jimi Hendrix would be one. Um, uh, the Legends of the Canyon, which extraordinary enough has come. I, I, I did a documentary called it Legends of the Canyon, which is Laurel Canyon. Yeah. They've just released in a serious version, um, which was very much. I grew up like listening to Crosby, Stills, and Nash when I was in California. When I discovered LA, which was actually about three miles by three miles wide, yeah. right? which of course was Beverly Hills and Laurel Canyon, right? Um, uh, and, and, and LA is a very much bigger place. But whenever I used to go there, I didn't ever get out of that little area. Um, it's sometimes to the beach, but, um, and that to me was LA, but, um, I was uh, talking and my stories, I knew all, my story was very similar out there because uh, there are no pavements in Laurel Canyon mm. and people were walking around and people wanted to get to the bottom of Laurel Canyon on sunset and go up to the top, then hit to the right. After the Manson murders, nobody would hitch a ride. And somebody had forgotten by that time to put pavements in. Yeah. They were walking on the side of the road. Now, on the side of the road, as you well know, water runs down. And water runs down the canyon. And what happened was that people couldn't walk on pavements. So nobody went out when it rained. And believe me, it does rain in Southern California. <laughs> and basically mudslides on Laurel Canyon to this very day are very common. But taking what they were taking in those days and literally disappearing into the clouds <laughs> didn't yeah. make any difference. So there were these people like Henry Diltz, who's a fantastic photographer, who knew all of the boys, mm. right? Um, uh, taking pharmaceutical drugs like LSD and stuff, basically were sitting, you know, in the in the um, flowers and bushes in the side of the hill or whatever it was, and seeing all sorts of things. 
Yeah. And uh, they've never to this very day built pavements on Laurel Canyon. And I did a film about those guys. I got Cosby Stills and Nash involved and I got various other people. And the people who still would love to still live in Laurel Canyon. Mm. But of course now have either made it and made an awful lot of money and decided to leave LA altogether. There's a drug problem. But um, Jimi Hendrix, another one. I knew Jimi Hendrix very well. And well, I said very well, as well as I could have done. Um, he, he was the reason I got into the industry, really. Um, and um, I managed Noel Redding after uh, Jimmy had uh, gone. And, um, you know, there have been quite a few artists I've been involved with. But um, I think that, I think that I don't want to compare them and say I right. love doing this one or not, but I think there were some very exciting uh, documentaries. B.B. King, of course, was my calling card mm. uh, before they called me the God of Rock and Roll Doc. Um, <laughs> and uh, to tell you the truth, B.B. King opened my eyes because I never, ever, being English, experienced, even on the road, First time I saw the Ku Klux Klan when I was out on the road was really quite extraordinary. And I, I made an, a film called Monochrome. Yeah. Actually is now basically so true uh, as a series. Uh, and it just told the story of blues and how that was mingled in with music and how blues came about. Uh, and the um, the uh, the war going right the way through to um, all sorts of music and to to to, to, to I can't breathe days mm. and it's quite extraordinary. After I, I I did that, it was a little self-indulgent, but for a white man, an English white man, that couldn't believe the amount of um well prejudice even mm. now is it's quite extraordinary and we're forgetting we're forgetting the big cities now out there in america it's mm. quite extraordinary how much um how many problems are still happening and of course now we see it all on the streets again yeah. and we'll be seeing it for many years to come it's something that has never been forgotten and is still happening so after that, I started looking at doing more story-like documentaries. And that's mm. what I've, I'm, I'm now doing again. Well, th I mean, um, uh, thank you. I mean, I haven't had the pleasure of watching the, uh, the monochrome. Uh, monochrome. Monochrome. Uh, and and did, it, that, did that come before B.B. King or? No, no, it's after because B.B. opened my eyes. Oh, he's the one who opened your eyes. That's right. And BB, I became a very close friend to. It took him two years to trust me. <laughs> and when he trusted me, I mean, now I hear the stories that I got a call earlier today from his drummer. And he said, John, you know how much BB loved you? And I said, no, I, I, I knew there was love there. And I didn't yeah. love for very long. He asked me to, to film his funeral which I thought was the most extraordinary thing any man could ever ask you to do. Yeah. And uh, I, I, there was a lot of prejudice against me. 
Now that's extraordinary. I thought, you know, it was all the other way around, but there was a lot of prejudice. Yeah. And um, there comes a white man to tell our hero, our story of our hero. Yeah. And after we buried him, that came out. I was terribly upset about it emotionally, but I learned and I went back out there. And um, if you ever get a chance to see that film, watch that film. It's quite amazing, quite amazing. But I, I never really, I'm now doing, if you want to know about, so I'm doing um, a film on Link Ray. Okay. And the photographer, is that no, the No, no, he was, um, he was, Oh, I'm 19, Man Ray. 1957. Okay. He had a, a, a massive hit called Rumble. Okay. He was the first man in black. He looked like Marlon Brando on a bike. And he created this sound, which was a confused sound. And it's played on so many advert, uh, advertisements today. Mm on both sides of the Atlantic, everywhere in the world. And um, he was uh, uh, a, a Native American. Interesting. Indian music, as we refer to. Um, basically, he, he was, when he died, Bruce Springsteen stopped his set and played rumble amazing jimmy page has gone into and quoted and just done a documentary a few years back where he plays uh with several other guys the edge out of u2 and yeah air guitar to the rumble and um Keith Richards, all of these guys, a lot of them saying I would never have Pete Townsend said he never would have picked up a guitar if it hadn't been for Lee Ray. And yet you go ask anybody who's not involved in the music business or basically in a Safeway supermarket or wherever it is. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Link Ray? No. How come all these successful guitarists know everything? Bob Dylan. He stopped when he heard he just died, stopped in the middle of a show. And um, I'm telling this story of who actually he really was. And he was an incredibly successful person as far as superstar guitarists mm. are concerned with, but nobody really knew who he was. <laughs> it's like and, what they say about some bands that sold maybe 500 records, but everyone who bought those 500 records went on to become mega yeah. stars, you know? Sort of. I mean, I know lots of people um, who basically in the industry know who he is or was because he died. In, but he, he, he I've not, I know a lot of people also in the industry who don't know who he is. Mm. It's extraordinary. Because if people never would have picked up a guitar and become who they were, right? You know, it just, if he hadn't happened, a lot of people we wouldn't have had. Mm. And basically, or still enjoy. Yeah. And so I'm making a film about Link Ray. And um, 
you know, there's, there's, I'm also making a film about the sixth stone, the rolling six, the sixth rolling stone, who actually was the first rolling stone who formed a, formed a band with Brian Jones that became the rolling stones. And that's very interesting because he got fired from the band, really from the manager of the band because he didn't look right. Mm. And he became the reason that the Rolling Stones are here today, still performing. He died in 1986, but he was at every concert because they wouldn't go on stage without him. Not to get him to play, although he played with them. He was one of the best keyboard players that I've known. And he played when he wanted to play in, in the wings, but the show would never happen if he wasn't there. He was the guy that that solved every problem and kept that band together. And nobody really knows about him except the Stones. And when Keith says, which he recently did, hey, when I go out on the road, I'm still working for Stu, because that was his name, Ian, yeah. Stewart. Ian Stewart. He said, I'm still working for Stu. It was his band. That's how I, I, I feel. And uh, that I'm, I'm telling the story of that, because that's an interesting Ask anybody how many Rolling Stones there are. And oh, yeah, it was Mick Taylor, because yeah. I represented him too. But no, how many Rolling Stones are there? The original Rolling Stones. And they will never mention Ian Stewart, who was the guy that put the band together. And most of those people, you know, we know the Beatles had a different drummer, we know this yeah. and that. But how many people knew that the Rolling Stones had somebody? that was asked, would you mind if you play off stage because you've got a big chin? <laughs> I mean, it's horrible, but... It's horrible, but it's yeah. also the fact is the guy stuck with that band yeah. and managed to keep them together. That's amazing. And, you know, they had all the lawyers in the world and everything, but what Stu said, girls. Yeah. Well, the, well, those are two amazing... You must have a, a, just a backlog of ideas that you could bring to the screen of, of, of this sort of thing. Yeah, but we don't have, I'm afraid I don't have that much time. So the <laughs> fact is that we pick and choose quite carefully right now. Yeah. yeah well, I, And also it takes a hell of a lot out of your time and energy because people have created, especially in film, a film and music is now coming very much more together. Yeah. If you met somebody in the 70s and 80s that was in the film business, they had no idea about the music business and vice versa. Yeah. Now it's coming together. It's quite an interesting time and more so than ever. And um, you, it takes so much, you know, to clear this, to clear that, to keep going and not being able to clear certain stuff, you know, it, it takes time and people, are, I've got to get my th thinking over to my editors and my people and that takes time too. So well, it's a good year it takes. Well, and, and if, do I understand correctly, there's also a narrative film in the works on Chuck Berry's life. <laughs> is, uh, that some, is, that, is that still ongoing? Is that something that... Uh, I'm pretty Chuck Berry now. Okay. He, Keith Richards said, I'm pretty Chuck Berrying out. Because, <laughs> you know, man, he's, he's punched me out twice. 
and he didn't mean once. He sort of swung around and <laughs> it was something, a guitar or whatever it is, and he, he played, went, whoa! And, and uh, there was another time in, in backstage when uh, uh, Keith put his arm around him and he, he didn't see who it was and he just turned around and punched him out. <laughs> and then you saw a bit in Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll. I mean, yeah, I'm Keith Richard for God's sake. Keith Richards, and you're telling me how to play? Oh, your song, right? That's right. Okay, exactly. <laughs> it's and a funny, funny situation, but he was very uh, um, Chuck buried out. Yeah, I'm pretty Chuck buried out, but it would be nice to. I have the rights to do it, but um, what we've got to do is to find. It's too early now. It's too soon. Mm. But yeah. there's lots of other things. There's talk of BB King, uh, but I think it's too soon again. Um, you know, Nat King Cole could do it. I think he could do a film of Nat King Cole. I have those rights too. But you know, there's so much to do. Yeah, and so little time. And isn't in, in those instances because we had someone who's also was involved with the uh, Johnny Cash biopic. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Walk the line. Uh, so he's he's done a documentary about uh, Linda Ronstadt. Um, and uh, but is it about finding the right person to play that role? Is that I mean I know you've you've already mentioned the time and all the demands and that well, it takes. I, um, I remember watching something. I won't name it, but yeah, there were a lot of artists, and there's Bowie, who I managed, of course. And and, and the fact is, I'd be super critical of that. But at the, uh, the you know, the, all of a sudden, there's lots of people, and if they don't quite look right, and in this film, Robert Plant didn't look right. Right. I just went, I don't like that. Yeah. And I think you've got to find the right actor, and, you know, to play a BB King, there's mm. only one BB King, I'm afraid. And if you, you've got to, he's either got to sing right or he's going to, you're going to use the original music. You can afford to use the original. But yeah. if you use the original music and you start going to, he's got to really be able to act the man. And BB was, you knew BB was in the room and you knew BB talked and you knew BB, son, he say, son. And you, everybody stop. <laughs> but, you know, it, it just, I think it is something to do with finding the right character. Jamie Foxx was right um, to do Ray Charles. And I just think that it came over great. Uh, James Brown, I don't think came over great. And I think that it lost a lot of money. And I think people want to relate. And, but it wasn't a particularly good script. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think it depends on a lot of things. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, is it my understanding you were involved with uh, producing Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street? Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh. So that's my wife's favorite, one of her favorite songs. So when I said I was going to be meeting you, you know, meeting you virtually, no. she's like, oh my God, you've got what to. You want to know? Well, I, th I wish she was here to ask the question, but uh, I, you know, I, I don't love it as much as she does. I, I think it's an amazing song. Um, I'm probably going to shatter her dreams. 
I will probably. <laughs> well, then we'll cut it and I'll never share it with her. But uh, well, let me tell you about Jerry Rafferty. Jerry Rafferty came to me, and uh, I was a great fan of Steeler's Wheel. Yeah. And stuck in the middle with you um, was a song written about AM Records and him and the management. Okay. And the management went bust. And um, I was <laughs> unfortunately with them the week. In, in a club in London with uh, the manager and he, I said, this is a great record, you know, and we were dancing to it and um, uh, on the dance floor. And, and I, I never thought in a million years I was going to represent this man. Hmm. And there was him and Joe Egan. And basically when the, the, the company, the management company went bust and, um, no one bailed him out, and they should have done. And, of course, they went bust owing a lot of money to Jerry, who had no money. Uh, Jerry was from a, uh, a mixed family, religious family out of Glasgow. Mm. And you didn't get told to do something, and if you didn't do it the first time, you, you certainly got whatever was coming to you because they lived down the docks and were very poor. Now I've been in my lifetime to Glasgow when basically um, I went in tenements that didn't have doors. Hmm. People lived with a curtain across the front door. And um, that's another story why I was there. But the fact is um, it's quite frightening. It's now completely changed. It's been really beautifully done up. Yeah. But you didn't go to a pub and hang around after the pubs closed in Glasgow. Yeah. So he lived pretty rough. And he came and had success with Steeler's Wheel. And he didn't get on well with people. And he fell out with Herb Albert and Jerry Moss. Okay. Who owned A&M. Yeah. And he wouldn't and hated and wouldn't go on the road. So there he had one of the biggest records of all time, which was stuck in the middle, and he wouldn't go on the road. And they fell out. And I said, why, why, why are you asking me? Well, a few things happened. I was introduced to him and this and that. And um, they wouldn't introduce me to him until they sussed out for him what he wanted and I didn't get to see him because I probably would never have been involved, although I became very rich because of it. Mm. He said that he wanted to, to write songs for his new kid baby. And that's all. He doesn't want to be exploited. He doesn't want record companies to exploit. And I must've misheard this because it's totally, absolutely ridiculous then how was he going to ever pay back what it cost to record? Because he was standing there without diapers or napping yeah. for his yeah. kit. And I signed him and gave him money. And then I produced, um, produced, I was executive producer on it. I didn't physically produce it. And right. I made uh, Baker Street and City to City, the album City to City. Amazing. Now, City to City was going to be the first single and was the main track on the, al on the album. Yeah. And I heard Baker Street and it was nowhere, it was not with the sax. 
and it was with a guitar rift okay. and the lead guitar rift and it was a demo and i said hmm, city to city is definitely the hit and before i used to make albums i wanted three hits off the album could be demos but that's how was rule of thumb and i said now what's the second one and matty's rag which matty was the daughter of course mm. and the other one was this song called baker street the guitarist who was both so it goes the guitarist who was supposed to play and where we are we're, we're down in uh, the cotswold so basically okay. um between oxford and cotswold and um, he was, we, we had to find him a recording studio that was in the country. That was the fashion of those days, to where you could stay over. And, and the guitarist, who was a session guitarist, was late for his session. And so Raph Ravenscroft, who was the sax player, said, I can give you a lead. I'll, I'll give you a lead onto it. And he sort of wrote the rift. Well, Jerry denied that all the way through his life. And it caused me a lot of aggravation, mm -hmm. uh, which is another story. But what happened was that um, he put this so good that everybody went, that's it. Right. But he put City to City out as the first single and it died. Yeah. Actually, I think it was a hit in Holland. <laughs> and then what happened was they heard Baker Street, of course, and Baker Street put out, and of course it became number one in America, and number one yeah. in the UK, and everyone. And um, to this day, every year it's number one, featuring a, a, a song featuring saxophone. Mm. They have charts for different instruments. Interesting. And it's been number one since it came out all these years amazing and, um i have to tell you that it was a wonder when I, when I hear that record to this day i think i'm gonna have a very good day or week something special yep. is gonna happen but the stories around that everyone hated jerry rafferty in the industry yeah. Other than guitarists or musicians, I shouldn't say everyone, but every record executive couldn't stand him. Mm. And the story goes, and this is a story that you can tell her, your wife, because I was getting very upset because I introduced Jerry to Chris Blackwell, to various people who are head of A&R and head of record companies, mm. and they all came to the conclusion that they thought the record was a hit, but didn't want to put it out because of Jerry. I would say, are you interested? Set up a deal, set up Jerry to come in and see them on, his, on their own. And I got the call afterwards saying, we think the record's a hit, but he is totally not coming on this record label or not coming in this record company. And I went, why? Why wouldn't you want to hit on your record level? Can't cope with him. And of course, he'd go along to these inter interviews or talk chats. Yeah. First of all, he would never sit in an office. He had to meet in the pub. 
So you had to get the record company executive out of their office into a pub. <laughs> Secondly, halfway through, and I, w I eventually didn't go because it was so embarrassing. Halfway through, he says, I don't want any record company exploiting and selling records. And of course, they're like, so said, well, what do you mean? What are you here for? What can we do then? And you yeah. say, no, I'm just writing for my kid. And that's it. And I had to patch that up. So I go on. And I wonder why A&M Records let him go, too. <laughs> yeah. They made millions from him. Because um, they just took a point off what I got. I did negotiate it on Christmas Eve. I'll never forget. And they wanted to get home. And I wanted to get home. But we, I eventually got him off the label. And then what happened was, I went to Los Angeles. And there was a very famous guy. He's dead now, but he's a lovely guy. He was a lovely guy. I'm sure he still is. But he said, John, I can only meet you at 8.30 in the morning. So I said, why? He said, I'll tell you, explain to you when I see you. So off we went at 8.30 in the morning thinking, I've got to play in the album. I'll just play in one or two tracks. So I came in in those days, we used to take seven and a half inch tape, the stuff that plays on that archive app. Yeah. And we would go in and put it on their record player, their, 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 their tape recorders. And as I told you, most of them didn't know how to use their tape recorders. But this time he said to me, John, is this Jerry Rafferty from the Rumbles? Or, um, not the Rumbles, the, um, what was the name of the track? Uh, the, the band, Humper, Humble Bums, which mm. was Billy Connolly and Steelers Will. I said, yes. He said, I'll give you 75,000 now. And that was the actual figure of and I don't, I don't listen to it, or I'll give you 50,000 if I have to listen to it. Well, I have a lawyer with me who's kicking me under the table, take the 75,000. <laughs> and I'm saying, I can't go back to my artist and say the man that's going to put it out on his record label, right, gave me an offer of 75,000 if he didn't have to listen to the music. I can't do that. So he said, I said 75,000. <laughs> so I said, can you ask, can you tell me something? The next day when I went in, because they had to draw up the agreements, why couldn't you have listened to it? And why did you give me more money if you didn't have to listen to it? He said, well, I've just bought this company and my partner is having a house built in Beverly Hills. And I'm having a house built in Beverly Hills. And my builder is the same man as his builder. But I had to get there by 9.30. Otherwise, my house would be built second. <laughs> so I knew that I had a problem. And 25 grand, believe me, when they're building houses in Beverly Hills, is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the true story of how he landed up on United Artists. And Amazing. that record came out. And uh, he was one of the most despicable people that I've ever had to manage. And one of the most difficult people in the world. Talk about Chuck Berry. This guy 
unfortunately had a terrible demon of being becoming a terrible alcoholic. Yeah. And um, right. eventually, as soon as I said to um, his lawyer, I said, uh, he said, will you sell? And I said, yes, but not for the figure you're talking about. And then Capital Records EMI wanted to buy me out, and I turned that down. And then the only reason that I got out was it was quite a good deal. Um, and that's how I left the Jerry Rafferty camp. But there's one thing I haven't told you, which you can tell her. He had a glass eye. And he used to walk up and down that famous street in Glasgow with, with Billy Connolly. And, you know, they've got these little old ladies that used to go up and down with their little baskets. And when it rained, it always rains in Scotland up there in Glasgow. And he, <laughs> he, he'd bump into one of these women's umbrellas because they were made. Jerry was quite tall. And as he went down on, he'd fall on the pavement and his eye would roll out onto the pavement. And the dear old girl that basically he'd run into with a little umbrella yeah. um, basically screamed. And they used to have a little sort of game of how, how many of them would pass out. So he was walking up and down. <laughs> and basically, um, when Billy, Billy Connolly came up to me and he said to me, John, whatever happened to Jerry Rafferty? And I said, well, I don't know. but And he told me this story of what he used to do. And I said to him, when you looked at his eyes, he looked boss-eyed. Mm. So David Frost was in New York doing the show right. at night. And he'd fly in for the night, the day. For, you, know, you could do that on Concord. He was one of the biggest travelers on Concord. And I said, if he goes on that show, which is what he wanted to do and agreed to do, but would not go on tour, he will lose the whole of his audience because he didn't look any good. Mm. And it said, it's only for three minutes. I said, if, if you go on that TV of David with David Frost, it'll be over in three minutes. So he went on and it was over in three minutes. He never ever repeated that success on City to City. And it was really sort of, but I, 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 I told the truth. I told the fact. Yeah. And I said, your image is completely wrong. Your whole thing is totally wrong. He went on David Frost and said, I'm never coming on tour in America. That was it. All over. Because American audiences, like, worship their, 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 their stars, their people. Yeah. And if you don't honor them by going on tour, you might as well have basically packed your bag and left on the last train. Mm. And that's a true story. So I hope... And I'm very, um, I'm very grateful to your wife being a great fan. Um, but unfortunately, Jerry has now left us. Yes. Um, uh, I don't know what's happened to Joe Egan. I must basically look at that. But he's probably... Uh, he, he really wrote a lot of the stock songs with Jerry for Steve mm. Hill, but he's never done anything on his own. Okay. Well... I mean, I could ask you so many questions about so many different people that you've worked with. I think we're going to give you, uh, let you go because we've already had a, so should much. Should I of your, write the book, they say? Yeah, you should write the book. I mean, I've, you know, next time I want to, uh, I, I saw some reference to you uh, working with Gene Clark. And, 
my God, Gene was so close with me. You know, I had a whole night, and I won't tell you what happened. But Gene was another one, Laurel Canyon. Yeah. And basically, Laurel Canyon, I was after a girl. I was invited to dinner, and I thought, that's interesting. So I came up, and the girl introduced me to her roommate, lived in Laurel Canyon. It, it was painful getting to the house because the stairs went round and round and round, a wooden cabin. And I sat down with this guy all night, and he knew I looked after Alvin Lee and uh, the guitarist. And he said to me one night, I said, oh, my God, it's so nice to basically relax without pressure of being on the road and everything else. He said, yeah. And at the end of the day, at the end of the night, probably very much in the morning, I had no idea who he was. And he asked me to manage him about 9.30. Uh, I'd been there all night. And I went on so well with him. And I said, um, what's your name? And he said, Gene Clark. And I ended up managing him. And it was just a remarkable night. And uh, unfortunately, then again, another problem came about. Nothing to do with me. Unfortunately, he, he, he got problems with heroin. Yeah. And he was just coming back and he had a, um, a fatal heart attack. But what a man he was. What a writer. Indeed. So, nothing like, uh, you know, I met all the birds and I met all the... I mean, he really, really could sit down and write a song, and it's prolific, I mean, yeah. wonderful. Just, just, and, and, and that big 12-string mm. just came through. Anyway, don't ask me any more questions. I'm going home now. Okay, go home. Whenever, whenever you want me, you let me know. I def- we, we definitely will. You're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're definitely in the Rolodex, uh, as we used to say. Um, I just want to, uh, again, thank you so much, uh, John Brewer, director and producer. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Uh, the film we've mostly been talking about is uh, Chuck Berry, the original king of rock and roll. It's, uh, you can find it on most streaming platforms, and it's out on DVD, Blu-ray uh, very soon here in 2020. Uh, and, uh, and then all your other films. Uh, just... Just look John up. You can find him really quickly on Wikipedia. His filmography is there. Uh, it's a set of uh, docs that I'm certainly going to put on my uh, wish list and start watching uh, because I think it's uh, it's an amazing... Uh, you've definitely documented so much of, of rock and roll history and not just rock and roll. You've got other things on there as well. So, so thank you. Uh, I want to give a shout out to this Distorted Studios in Leeds, England. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. And this is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.